Amen. Amen. What a blessing it is to celebrate baptism, which is one of the ordinances that the Lord gives us. And uh, hey, if you're here and you don't even know what that all was, uh, we believe that as members of the body of Christ, one of the things that we get to celebrate is baptism. We don't believe that bat- the waters save us, um, but we believe that it is a public, uh, uh, an external expression of an internal and eternal uh, reality. And so uh, if you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus and you haven't taken that step, uh, we would encourage you to do it and our team would love to come alongside you and, uh, and help you to take, to take that step. So really grateful for Samantha and for Parker and for uh, the Byers family. Now today we are continuing our series through the book of Ecclesiastes. And in our passage this morning, Solomon is going to be talking to us about a biblical theology of money. He's going to be providing us with a biblical perspective on money. And uh, the passage that he does that in is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 8. And then he goes all the way to Ecclesiastes 6, verse 9. So we have a very, very long passage this morning. And because it is so uh, long, what we're going to do is we're actually going to read it throughout. Instead of reading it all on the front end, uh, we're going to read the sections of it as we move through the message. So I'm going to pray for us to get us started and to prepare our minds and our hearts for uh, the preaching of God's word. Let me pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we are thankful for the opportunity to see that, that baptism. We thank you for Samantha and her uh, public declaration of faith. I know, Lord, she was nervous, and um, I'm grateful, Lord, for the steps she took in getting a chance to to see a fellow believer uh, publicly proclaim and declare that they are a follower of you is is such a blessing. And I pray, God, that it would result in many more people taking the step of of baptism. And for some, taking the step of salvation to know you as their Lord and Savior. So thank you for that. Thank you also, God, for the fact that, that uh, this book and this series has been so edifying for me. I know that I've grown a lot just in studying it and in teaching it, and I pray, Lord, that it's been the same for the people here. And so, God, I pray that as we look at the subject of money, at the topic of money, I pray that you would help me, Lord, to uh, rightly divide your word uh, to show myself approved unto you and not to man. And, uh, Lord, even though there's going to be some hard realities that we're going to hear, I pray, Lord, that those realities will come from you. Because if they are from you, they will produce conviction and not condemnation. So lead this time and guide this time. And like I always pray, God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Have this time be for your glory and for our good. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So like I already mentioned, uh, this morning Solomon is going to be talking to us about the subject and topic of money. And in this long section, he's going to provide us with a biblical theology, a biblical perspective on money. And I believe that in these verses, we actually learn four lessons, four principles about the subject of money. The first truth and the first reality that I believe we learn is that money does not change us. Everyone say change. Money does not change us. Just this truth alone is already going against one of the biggest myths 
that we believe when it comes to money, which is money changes us. Solomon says, no, it doesn't. And he actually says that in chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. Look what it says. He says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed. He says, don't be amazed by that at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. Now, I want you to see here for a second, in this section, uh, the word oppression and the word violation are both sins that have to do with money in particular, okay? So he sets it up and he's looking at essentially government, human government, human economies. Then he says, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So I believe that the first lesson we learned today is that money does not change us. We think it changes us, but it does not change us. Now, before we jump into that truth, let me quickly unpack what Solomon is saying here. What Solomon is doing here in this section is he's unpacking and addressing the role that money plays in human government. He's talking about the role that money plays in human government. And he says, don't be surprised, don't be amazed when you see oppression and injustice take place. Don't be surprised. But here's the thing, there's a balance here. On the one hand, he doesn't say to approve of it, but just don't be amazed by it. And the reason why is because the problem with human government is the human part. Anything that humans touch gets corrupted. That's what he is getting at. He's, he's saying, don't, don't approve it, but just don't be amazed or surprised because that's what humans do. We corrupt things. He, he, he's what he's arguing in light of this text. He is arguing that the problem isn't money, the problem is people. So the problem isn't your wallet, the problem is you. The problem is me. That's what he is saying. Here's why this is important, because one of the lies and myths that I believe we are tempted to believe is we believe, there's, a two, there's two camps, right? If there's a spectrum, on, on the one side, on the one hand, there are people who think that money is a bad thing and it is immoral. Then on the other side of the spectrum, you have people that think that money is the best thing and it's moral. But what Solomon says is money is not immoral or, or, or moral, it's amoral. It's not evil or moral, it's just neutral. Money is just a thing. It's not a bad thing or the best thing, it's just a thing. Here's how we know that that's what not just Solomon teaches, but what scripture teaches. Because in 1 Timothy chapter six, when the apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, he says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. In other words, what he's saying there is not that money is evil, but that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That is what he is getting at. So the truth is money doesn't ever change us, 
but it always reveals us. Money does not change you. Money reveals you. In other words, how you behave with your money at the hand level reveals what you believe about money at the heart level. Because one of the mistakes that I believe we can fall into is when someone uh, uh, gets money, right? Whether you see this with, with, with pro athletes, you see this with people who win the lottery. And, and, and one of the mistakes that I think we can make is we look at someone and say, you know what? I feel like money really changed that person. They used to be this way, they got money, and now they're this way. But I would argue that money didn't change that person. Money just revealed what was already in that person's heart. And one of the stories that I came across several years ago that I feel illustrates this is a story that Pastor Rick Warren actually tells. I don't agree with most of what Rick Warren says, but specifically on this, it was a very eye-opening story because here's what he said. He said that when he ended up, ended up writing The Purpose Driven Life, The Purpose Driven Life, for those who don't know, is the second highest selling book of all time behind only the Bible. So that means is he is a multi, 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 multi millionaire, right? And he says, a lot of people have come up to me and said, you know, if I got that much money, I would be so generous. I would give it all away. I would be uh, philanthropic and I would just give it all away. I'd be so generous. And he says, no, you wouldn't. And the reason why he states that we wouldn't is because if we are not generous with what we have now, we won't be generous with what we get then. Jesus talks about this, right? That, that the person who is faithful with the little is then entrusted with much. So if you're not generous now, you won't be generous then. He, here's what he says. He said that one of the things that him and his wife committed to very early on in their marriage is that they committed to giving, they started at 10%, giving to, to God. And they said every year they were gonna give 1% more regardless of their circumstances. And that's what they did for many years. So by the time that he actually wrote the book and got the money, they were close to 30% giving already before he got any of that money. And he said, to this day, I drive the same truck, live in the same house, wear the same jeans. And they've gotten to a place where they live on 10% and give 90% away. Everybody, oh, if I had money, I would do the same. Well, you have money and you're not doing the same. <laughs> Unless you're homeless and completely destitute, you have money right now and you're not doing the same. Because money doesn't change you, money just reveals you. That is what Solomon is teaching. Now, let me quickly go back to uh, uh, what he says about the whole government thing. He says that the reason why we have corrupted governments is because we have corrupted governors. So regardless of which model of government you prefer, whether it's a, a, a socialism or capitalism, whatever ism you, you like, what he's saying is if people are involved, it will be corrupted. That is what he is teaching. And yet, I, I love the balance that he gives. We're gonna look at this next week, Lord willing. Ecclesiastes 7.18 and the NIV, the, the, the godly man avoids all extremes. The man of God avoids all extremes. You see him avoid an extreme here because you can easily say, well, then forget government. Let's have anarchy. But he ends by saying, but this is gain, he says, for a land and every way a king committed to cultivated 
field. And here, here's what he is arguing in, in this section. He's saying that in spite of the complexity and the corruption of human economy and uh, bureaucracy, it is still needed. That just because it's been marred by man doesn't mean it wasn't invented by God. That's, that's what he is saying. That even though anytime you have any sort of structure, economic or uh, uh, political structure, there will always be a few that take advantage of it. All will eventually benefit from it, even in spite of all of its flaws. He says, better is a sinful uh, bureaucracy than total anarchy. So in light of this first principle, here's what I want you to ask yourself. How do I view money? Not how does your neighbor view money. How do you view money? Do I view money as inherently evil or as inherently moral? If you are viewing it in either one of those ways, you don't have a biblical view of money because the, the, the money is amoral. It's neutral. It's not a bad thing or the best thing. It's just a thing. And in this season, are you blaming money at the hand level for what your heart is doing at the belief level? Are you blaming money with your behavior when really you should be blaming your heart in light of your beliefs? That's the first truth and principle. The, the next principle and lesson that I believe we learn from this text is that money does not satisfy us. Everyone say satisfy. Money does not satisfy us. And I believe we see that in Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 12, and we also see it in 6, 1 through 9. So this is the longest section we're going to read, so bear with me, uh, but I believe it's an important section for us to, to navigate. He starts in verse 10 by saying, he who loves money, everyone say loves, will not be satisfied with money. We're going to come back to this. This is the, the heart of his argument here. Then he says, nor he who loves wealth with his income, this also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Then he jumps to six. Now, I want to prepare you because what Solomon is about to say in the first few verses of chapter six is easily the most controversial thing he says in this passage. And I would argue the most controversial thing he says in this book, which is saying a lot for those of you who have been following along. He says, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy. This isn't the controversial section yet. I just need you to see that. So God is the one that gives the wealth, the possessions, and the honor, but because this individual doesn't see it that way, he doesn't see God as being the provider, God doesn't give him the power to enjoy the things that he's given him. Literally, the individual is unable, unable and incapable of enjoying what God has given them. We're going to talk about that. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity 
it is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children, this is the, we're getting into the controversial part now. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his life, of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life, with life's good things, and he has, also has no burial, here's the part. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live, he's talking about the wealthy man again, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All that, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? And then lastly, he says in verse nine, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So Solomon in this very long section, like I said, this is the longest section of the text that we're gonna look at. What he's arguing is that money does not satisfy us. It does not satisfy us. Now, I want to unpack that first part in verse 10. I, I had you repeat the word loves. The word there, love, in Hebrew is the word ahed. And what's interesting is, is that it refers to deep affection and attraction, but it can also refer to a covenant loyalty and love. It's such a strong word, the word for love there in verse 10, that it's the same word that is used in Deuteronomy 6, where it says that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is a type of love that is reserved for God alone. But he says that the individual who is worshiping money, the individual who is seeking satisfaction in money, instead of having a covenantal love and loyalty for God vertically, they instead have a covenantal love and loyalty for God, for, for money horizontally. And Jesus actually says something uh, similar. In Matthew chapter six, Jesus is talking in the Sermon on the Mount about the idol of money. And he says, you cannot serve two masters. You will either love the one or hate the other. And the word there for love that Jesus uses in Matthew six is the Greek word agape which is also covenantal language. It's the type of love that God has for us in the gospel, and it's the type of love that we are called to have for God. So, so what I need you to see is, is that Solomon is saying for the individual who loves money the way they love God, for the individual that is, that is in a covenant with money instead of a covenant with God, that individual will never be satisfied. And the word there, satisfied in Hebrew, means to never be fulfilled, satiated, or nourished to the point of contentment. That is very, very strong language. To that individual who loves money instead of God, they will never be fulfilled, satiated, nourished to the point of contentment. And here, here's the thing. You might think, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian. This has nothing to do with me. No, no, we are very guilty of this because we all love money way more than we think. We are all worshiping at that altar way more than we think. Solomon says, money can't, 
and won't ever fill you nor satisfy you. And then what he does for the rest of this section is essentially he gives us four reasons as to why money cannot satisfy us. The, the first reason he gives is found in verse 11. He says in verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. Now, now what does he mean by that? Here, here's what he means. He says, when you get more money, you don't end up getting more community, you end up getting more consumers. Now, most of us are too broke to have leeches that are leeching off of us. But really wealthy people know what I'm talking about. Like really wealthy people, they have, all of a sudden they got friends and family they didn't know about, right? When pro athletes get their first contract, they find out about cousins they didn't even know existed. You meet friends and family, you meet uh, the tax man, IRS agents you didn't even know existed. Adult children that won't leave your house. That, that, that's what he's getting at. He says that when money increases, it's not community that increases, it's consumption that increases. And everybody now comes around that person and tries to eat from what they have. That, that's what he's getting at. So that's the first reason why money cannot satisfy us. That's verse 11. But then in verse 12, he gives us another reason why money cannot satisfy. He says in verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. What he's saying there is that the second reason why money cannot satisfy is because the more money you get, the less sleep you end up getting. Or in the words of the great Western theologian, Biggie Smalls, <laughs> more money more problems. <laughs> that was my jam back in the day, by the way. I remember the summer that came up. Your boy was in eighth grade and there was no DVR back then, so it was me and my VHS. Jamming away. Um, yeah, I don't know why I told you about that. But anyways, that, that, was, that, 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 that was me back in eighth grade. Um, here is what he says, that money, when you get more of it, allows you to get to certain levels, and, and certain levels require certain lifestyles. And so you buy the boat, and then you need a truck that can pull the boat, and then you need a lake to have the boat go on, and you need a house by that lake because you don't want to just have to drive there. And you want to stay there, obviously. Who's, who's going to drive to a lake? All right, you get the TV, and then you need an entertainment system that goes with the TV, and then you need the couches that go with the entertainment system. And that, that, that with each level, there's a certain lifestyle that comes with it. And so he says that the problem with money is that the more money you have, the more problems you have. And so you then, and he, he, it's funny that he compares the rich man to the laborer. He, he's using business language. He says, the laborer is the employee, the rich man is the employer. And there are things that the laborer just doesn't have to worry about when he goes home. I remember my, my mentor, Lon, said to me, he said, if you want to be a lead pastor one day, you have to realize that the reason why the leaders get paid more is because they have to worry about stuff that no one else has to worry about. You have to worry about bills. You have to worry about people's salaries. You have to worry about benefits. You have to worry about the five-year forecast. And it's true. There's a cost that comes with that. It just is. 
Solomon says that the more money almost always comes with more responsibility and the laborer doesn't have to deal with a lot of those things. The leader does. Then the third reason why he gives for why money doesn't satisfy is actually found in uh, the first two verses of chapter six. He says, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. He says in verse two, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God, we, we underline this, does not give him power to enjoy them. So, so he says that the, sec the third reason why money ultimately cannot satisfy you is because if you go to money horizontally to look for what you should be finding in Jesus vertically, money will let you down. <laughs> but it's not even that. I think we, we talked about this last week when we talked about the fact that it's not just grace that's a gift, it's faith that's a gift. I think we minimize how sinful and broken we are. And what Solomon says is that quite literally, apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from God, we can't even enjoy stuff. In Philippians 4, we looked at Philippians 4 on Wednesday night uh, in our, our men's uh, Bible study. And something that Paul says in Philippians 4, he says he had to learn to be content. And the word there, learn, has to do with informal or formal instruction, formal instruction, has to do with discipleship. So Paul needed to be disciple too. And then he says, even in spite of the learning, the only reason why I can be content in whatever circumstance is because of Christ who strengthens me. See, a lot of y'all use that verse for uh, your half marathons. To do a couple more pull-ups. And we take that verse out of context, but here's what Paul's saying. What Paul is arguing is that we quite literally cannot enjoy anything unless God enables us to enjoy it. We cannot, uh, this is what the Bible teaches. A non-believer cannot experience true contentment. It is quite literally impossible. Here's why. Because a non-believer doesn't have God where he belongs. And so they are going to whatever the thing is and treating it like God. And so when you treat money like God, then all of a sudden you can't enjoy it because you are exalting it. You can't steward it because you are serving it. It is impossible to enjoy. It is impossible to have contentment without God. Because if God is not your God, Jesus says that you will go to money as your master. It cannot be enjoyed. It will only be exalted. And the problem is, according to Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has put eternity in our hearts. He hasn't put a bank account in our hearts. He put eternity in our hearts. And so no matter how much money you get, you throw it into the hole in your heart and it just, it's a bottomless pit. One of the things that always makes me laugh is when I go to, I'm watching, you know, a TV late at night and I see a, an ad for something or if I ever go to like a Home Depot or Lowe's, which is like once every decade because I never go to those places. Um, I avoid manual labor as much as possible. But anyways, one of the things that always makes me chuckle is when I pick up a hammer at Lowe's and it says lifetime satisfaction guarantee. 
Right? Like, like, like I would be okay if it said lifetime guarantee. In other words, hey, this hammer will outlast you. Like you'll die and the hammer will still be around. I would be okay if it said that. But what bothers me is that middle word, satisfaction. No, no, this hammer comes with a lifetime satisfaction guarantee. I don't even know how to use a hammer. But even if I did, that is a very over-the-top promise that comes on so many products. Lifetime satisfaction guarantee. Well, you know what promises you that more than anything else? Money. Money comes with a lifetime satisfaction guarantee. That's, that's the, the false gospel that, that money teaches. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, when Jesus talks to us about the four soils, here's what he says about the, four, the third soil in particular. The, the soil that is uh, receptive, but it's among thorns. He says that soil receives the seed of the word. And as the seed starts to grow, the thorns, he says, are the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of money, the deceitfulness of riches. And that, that Greek word for deceitfulness in the New Testament is used to describe the deceitfulness of sin and, get this, the deceitfulness of false teachers. That money, quite literally, is deceitful in that it preaches to you a false gospel of lifetime satisfaction guarantee. Jesus says that these, end of people, these people, they respond to the gospel initially, but then the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of money, the false gospels of, of, of the world and of money, lead them astray. Here's the thing about money, and this is why I believe Jesus in Matthew 6 he specifically mentions that if you don't have God as your master, you will have money as your master. Why does he specifically mention money? Well, look what it says in Proverbs 18, verse 11. It says, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. And like a high, and like a high wall, and I love this, in his imagination. In other words, one of the reasons why money is so deceitful and deceptive is because money is one of those things that we will, tempt it, we will be tempted to go to to find satisfaction, significance, and security. And it says that to a rich man, his wealth is a strong city. This phrase is used to describe God in the Old Testament as well. So instead of God being your strong city, your wealth becomes your strong city. But it's the second part that most jumps out at me. It says, and like a high wall in real life, no, not in real life, in his imagination. You know how I know it's his imagination? Because when you look at the story of the rich fool who has all this stuff and he decides to hoard more of the stuff and he builds long, bigger and bigger barns and bigger and bigger storehouses, all of a sudden in the parable, God asks for his life. He says, it's time for you to die now. And no, no matter how much money he has, it can't keep him from meeting God. Solomon refers to it here. He says, we, we, and, and similar to what Job says, naked we come into the world, naked we leave. Doesn't matter how much money you have, you're not taking any of it with you. So in their imagination, they're secure. But in reality, they are not secure. Because the only true strong city and the only true high wall is the Lord our God. Amen? Now quickly, because he says rich man here, 
The poor people in the room are like, he ain't talking to me. I can barely pay my rent. Here's the problem. The problem is, is that in the West, there aren't really a lot of poor people. Here's why. Because according to this passage, the word for poor is an individual who cannot meet their essential needs. It's not someone who can't get all their wants. It's an individual who cannot meet their needs. That is the definition of poverty. So all of a sudden, it includes way more people than just Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. And here's the thing, even if you're poor, you can still believe this false gospel. I think we believe that greed is only a rich man's problem. Greed is a equal opportunity idol. And I would argue that the poor have it even worse because the poor, at least the rich man has tried it and be like, okay, this might not be what I think it is. No, no, the poor haven't had it yet. And so they're convinced that when they get it, it will provide what they're looking for. So this is a false gospel that is, believed by the rich and by the poor. And that's why I believe that money is so dangerous and so deceptive because it makes us feel like when I check my bank account, if there's money in it, I feel like there's moments where what, what is firing in my, my, in my brain chemically is the same thing that fires in my brain when I'm reading my Bible. If there's money, I'm good. I'm safe. According to author Jessie O'Neill, she, she wrote a book called The Golden Ghetto. And it's a book about the Western world that we live in. She's not a Christian, but in this book, she talks about her own life story. She is uh, an heiress to the General Motors uh, empire. So she is an extremely, extremely wealthy human being from the day she was born. And so as a non-believer, she wrote a book called The Golden Ghetto, and she's referring to the entire Western world, by the way. And she says that Westerners in particular, because of our affluence, we idolize wealth in such a way that she describes it, get this, she describes the condition as affluenza. Instead of influenza, we have affluenza. And affluenza is the idol of affluence, the idol of just a little bit more. It's the idol of John D. Rockefeller. When they asked him, you know, do you have enough money? He says, I just need a little bit more. And she defines affluenza as an unhealthy relationship and view of money. Here's, here's, if we're about to WebMD this thing, we can maybe set up a page after this. If you struggle with affluenza, she says that the number one symptom of someone who is struggling with affluenza is acquisition without satisfaction. That's the number one symptom of affluenza. Acquisition without satisfaction. You get the thing, you acquire the thing that you are convinced was going to make you happy, you get said thing and it no longer makes you happy. So then it's the next thing, it's another raise and another job and another house and keeps going. And then the, the final reason why he gives, that he gives us for why ultimately money cannot satisfy us, this is the, the controversial section that I, that I told you about. He says that it is better to be a stillborn 
than to be an individual who lives 2,000 years and has 100 kids, that's what he said, and is wealthy. It is better, he says. He, 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 here's, here's why this jumps out at me. It, it almost feels insensitive, right? Like how, how dare he say something like that? If you're like me, my wife and I, we experience miscarriage in between uh, our two daughters. There are people here in our church who've experienced miscarriage. There are people here in, in our church that have had stillborns. And he says this and it almost feels like he's being insensitive. Like, like how dare you compare that to this? But here's why Solomon has every right to do it. Because Solomon's family was directly impacted by a stillborn. David is Solomon's dad. Bathsheba is Solomon's mom. And David commits adultery with Bathsheba, ends up killing Uriah, her husband. And because of their indiscretion, because of their adultery, God says, the first child that you will have will not live. That is a consequence directly because of the adultery that David participates in. So Solomon's older sibling, I don't know if it was a brother or sister, but his older sibling was a stillborn. So when he talks to you about this, he's not talking about this from this far removed place that he can't relate to. His family had to deal with the implications of that tragedy. Now, here's something I want to show you. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, which is where we hear the story, it says that before uh, when Bathsheba was still pregnant, David was, was fasting and praying and, and begging God not to take their child. And then it says that the child ends up passing away. And so you would think if he was that emotionally in, invested and, and, and distraught during the pregnancy, you would think that would then continue after the baby is born and passes away. But what happens is actually not what we would expect and not even what his servants would expect. They go into his inner chamber and they tell him that the baby has passed away. And it says in verse 20 of 2 Samuel 12, then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and what? Worshiped. For someone who has personally experienced something like this, the fact that that's the first thing he did is crazy to me. He then went to his own house. So he went to the house of the Lord first. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? They're so confused. They're like, why are you so calm right now? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food? He said to them, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. And then he says this in the next section. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And then he says, I shall go to him but he will not return to me. The very next passage, the very next section, the very next verse in the same chapter says, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and he called his name what? Solomon's older sibling 
died as a stillborn. So when he brings this up, he's not talking about something that's distant and foreign to him. He's talking from personal experience. But I wanted to show you something here because this is something that maybe you've never heard before and I believe every single one of us needs a theology about this. They lose the baby and David cleans himself up and goes to the house of worship and he eats food. And when his servants ask him why he is able to respond that way, he says, because my baby isn't gonna come to me, but I will one day go to him. The implication being that my baby is in heaven and I will one day be with my baby. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. He, he's convinced of it, so convinced of it that he responds completely different from what they expected. So with that context in mind, let me say this. What Solomon is saying is that a stillborn baby that is unknown and unseen by man is still seen and known by God. And that being known by God is infinitely greater than living an unsatisfied, unmourned, empty life. In other words, Solomon says, the short life of the stillborn is better than the empty life of the wealthy person because the stillborn goes to the arms of Jesus. The wealthy person, no matter how long they live, goes to the pit of hell. Who doesn't believe in God? I don't know about you, but as someone who's experienced this myself, and I think about people who not only have miscarried, I think about people who uh, have had stillborns. I think about even uh, babies that have been aborted. It comforts me to know that they might not ever come to us, but if you are a follower of Jesus, you will go to them. And they might never be in your arms, but praise be to God that they are in Jesus's arms. I think the reason why this comparison bothers us so much is because we don't actually believe what Solomon is saying. Here's the thing. I think we have such a high view of wealth and such a low view of heaven that the idea that someone just skipping life altogether and going straight to the arms of God to us is empty. That's the empty in our, in our mind. Like, like, like for real, like if I were to offer you two options, be a stillborn that goes straight into the arms of God or be an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos or a Rockefeller who lives 2,000 years and has 100 kids but never goes to be with God, there are many who would choose option B because they have such a high view of money and such a low view of heaven. That's how empty, Solomon says, a long life of prosperity and money and wealth and riches is in comparison to knowing God and being with God. In other words, it doesn't matter how much money you make, it doesn't matter how many years you live, it doesn't matter how many kids you have, 
if you don't know Jesus, this is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. On the other side, it doesn't matter how short your life is or how much money you make or how many kids you have. If you do know Jesus, this is as close to hell as you'll ever get. But we don't believe that. So ask yourself, as we go to the, before we go to the next point, <clears throat> ask yourself, do you believe in this season that more money will satisfy you? Like for real, like have a heart check <clears throat> money with, uh, uh, moment with God. Like do you believe that more money will satisfy you, will finally fill you? To the degree that you believe that, to that same degree, you believe in the prosperity gospel and not the biblical one. The next truth that we see and we learn is we learn that, oh, sorry, let's go to the, money does not define us. Everyone say define. And look what it says in Ecclesiastes 5, 13 through 17. He says, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. The person that hoards and sees himself as an owner, not a steward, it's to his hurt, he says. He keeps going. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but has nothing in his hand. This is such a fascinating uh, uh, line. Because when you don't have God, this, this person's a father, but in their mind, they have nothing. Don't miss that. Because when money is everything and you lose it, you're left with nothing. As he comes from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? And then he finishes this section by saying this. Moreover, all his days, for the individual who idolizes money, for the individual who is defined by money, all his days, he eats in darkness, in much vexation, sickness, and anger. So the, 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 the third principle that I believe we learn is that money does not define us. It does not define us. He says that the individual who sees themselves as an owner instead of a steward will hoard instead of give. And when you do that, he says, it results in the hurt of that person. The word there hurt in Hebrew means misery, distress, unhappiness. He says that hoarding leads to hurt, not happiness. And then he says that for the individual who finds their identity in money, for the individual who is defined by their worth, their net worth and their wealth, when they lose that money, because they think they're an owner, not a steward, when they lose it, they experience verse 17. What's verse 17? They eat in darkness and they are uh, 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 marked by vexation, sickness, and anger. This is what happens to an individual who treats money like it's everything instead of just something. Who treats money like God instead of a gift. When they lose it, they're not just losing money, they're losing their religion. They're losing their theology. They're losing their foundation. 
He says that that individual who pursues after wealth is pursuing after the wind. And the problem with pursuing the wind is that you always end up empty-handed. Not only empty-handed, but empty-hearted. He says that you can be financially rich and yet spiritually bankrupt. And that's why Jesus says when he talks about money, the, the rich uh, fool, he says, make sure that when you are talking about wealth, make sure to be rich towards God, not toward man. Here's the hard thing about greed, though. Uh, Dr. Tim Keller says this. He says the thing about greed is that greed is very hard to measure. And because it's hard to measure, no one thinks they struggle with it. And he says, when he talks about it, and I actually have seen this in my own ministry, I've never had someone come into my office and confess to me the sin of greed. Never once. I've had people confess all other stuff, but never greed. I've never said someone come in, you know what? I think I got a greed problem, man. I got that, a case of that affluenza. Why? Because there's always someone that appears more greedy than us. That's not a me thing. That's a Wall Street thing. That's a Silicon Valley thing. That's my CEO, not me. I'm, I'm just the, 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 uh, lower down here. Yeah, that's my CEO. I think the reason why greed is so hard to identify is because greed looks different from person to person. Some people go to money for uh, significance because they struggle with insignificance. Some people go to money for security because they struggle with insecurity. Some people go to money for satisfaction because they struggle with dissatisfaction. And each one of those people, they're going to the same idol, but they're going for different reasons. So on the surface, it looks different. But at the heart level, they still have money on the throne of their heart. And like I said, uh, the problem with wealth is that if wealth and money is everything, then when you lose it, you're left with nothing. And as a matter of fact, uh, Dr. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which if you want to read a good book this year, read Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. It's a book on idolatry, and he has a chapter on money. And in the first page of the first, uh, in that chapter on money, he talks about all the people who committed suicide after the economic downturn in 2008. I, I, I literally didn't even read you the quote because of how morbid it is but violent violent suicides uh, of people uh, the wealthiest people in the world because after the economy collapsed it wasn't just the economy the economy that collapsed it was their whole life that collapsed and since they made money everything when they lost it they were left with nothing the only thing worse than the fullness money promises is the emptiness it leaves behind. So ask yourself this before we go to the final point. In this season, what is defining me more? My money or my God? If what's defining you more is your money, then money is your God. And in this season, how much is my self-worth tied to my net worth? Then the final truth we learn is this. Money does not save us. Everyone say save. Look how Solomon summarizes this in chapter 5, 18 through 20. He says, behold, 
what I have seen to be good and fitting, which these, this, this word right here, good, and this word fitting has been used in the book before. And each time it's used in, in relation to God. He says, what I have seen to be good and fitting or appropriate is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. So he's gonna bring up the whole lot idea here again. He says, everyone also to whom God, there it is again, has given wealth and possessions. But listen to this, the difference between this individual that we're about to look at and the individual that we looked at earlier is that this individual, God has given them the power to enjoy the money and to accept his lot. The reason why I love this language is because when you understand that God is the giver of all things, then you are not an owner, you're a steward, and God has entrusted you with a lot, like an actual lot. And so when you understand that, now you're not comparing yourself to other people's lots because God has assigned you that lot. One of the things that really ministered to me, for a long time I would be tempted to look at other people with, other churches with, with, with bigger congregations. And one of the things that the Lord used in my life was Ephesians chapter 4. Because in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it, it, verse 10, it says that God has appointed the pastors, the teachers, the leaders to each congregation. So when I understood that I have quite literally been appointed by God to be the, the leader of this congregation, and this is the lot that God has entrusted me with, all of a sudden my comparison went down because I've been assigned to this. I've been appointed to this. See, once you understand that God is creator and giver and sustainer, you accept the lot because it's from his hand. Does that make sense? The other thing too is, is that once you put God back where he belongs, he's the giver, then now you don't treat money as a God, you treat it as a gift and God gives you the power to enjoy it instead of leaving you in a place to exalt it and serve it. And then he ends by saying, for he will not much remember the days of his life because, I love this, God keeps him occupied with joy. Not at the hand level, at the heart level. The individual who understands and accepts who the creator is can then finally have a proper relationship with the creation. God is the giver Money is the gift. Apart from God, money isn't a blessing. It's actually a burden. It's not something we steward. It's actually something we, we serve. Here's the thing, and here's what I want to end with. The reason why we need God is because we don't have a wealth problem. We don't have a wealth problem. We have a worship problem. And like I said earlier, you can be financially rich and spiritually bankrupt. And money, because it keeps us from financial bankruptcy, it ends up blinding us from spiritual bankruptcy. But money, if you put all your hope in money, it's so interesting. It's the worst investment you can make. We spend so much time thinking about how to invest our money that we never think about the fact that we are investing in money itself. 
One of the things that Solomon brings up again and again in this passage, he brings up in this whole book, is the Hebrew word yitron, which is the word for prophet, the bottom line. And so often we ask what the profit is, what the bottom line with our budget at home and our budget at work, but we never ask, what's the profit for my life? What is the yitron for my life? I want to read to you this quote from, from Steve Jobs. And he wrote this at the end of his life. On his deathbed, he wrote a book, an autobiography. And, and I want you to see two things. Number one, how Solomon-like he sounds. And then number two, even though he does a great job diagnosing the problem, he does a terrible job providing a solution. Look, look what Steve Jobs says. Because it's easy for us to look at a Solomon and be like, man, this is all make-believe anyways. Who cares? That dude didn't live. He had to deal with, you know, uh, Twitter or X, you know. He didn't have to deal with uh, uh, social media. He didn't have to deal with whatever, right? Look, look, look at what Steve Jobs says. He says, I reached the pinnacle of success in the business world. I don't think anyone can disagree with that. In others' eyes, my life is the epitome of success. However, aside from my work, I have little joy. In the end, he says, my wealth is only a fact of life that I am accustomed to. That's so interesting that no matter how much money you think you want, you're going to get that amount and then you're going to just grow accustomed to it. And then God's going to give you more and then you're going to grow accustomed to it. That's all we do. Look what he says next. At this moment, lying on my bed, deathbed, and recalling my life, I realize that all the recognition and wealth that I took so much pride in have paled and have become meaningless in the face of my death. You can employ someone to drive the car for you, make money for you, but you cannot have someone bear your sickness for you. I want you to remember this. We're going to come back to this. Material things, loss, can be found or replaced. But there is one thing that can never be found when it's lost. Life. He says, whichever stage in life you're in right now, with time, you will face the day when the curtain falls. Therefore, this is now he gets into, so he's been diagnosing. Now he's going to get into the solution. This is his solution to all, everything he just said. Therefore, I hope you realize when you have mates, buddies, and old friends, brothers and sisters who you chat with, laugh with, talk with, sing with, talk about north, south, east, west, or heaven and earth, that, he says, is true happiness. There's no vertical solution because he only knows the horizontal world under the sun. He goes on with his solutions. Eat your food as your medicine. Otherwise, you have to eat medicine as your food. Then he tells you the six best doctors. The, si the six best doctors in the world are sunlight, rest, exercise, diet, self-confidence, and friends. Maintain them all, and maintain them in all stages, and enjoy a healthy life. I, I, I don't know if I've ever read something more honest and hopeless at the same time. 
His diagnosis is spot on, but his solution is so superficial because he doesn't know life over the sun. And there's one thing that I totally, well, I disagree with a lot that he just said, but there's one thing that I very, very much disagree with that Steve Jobs said. He said, you can have someone drive a car for you. You can have someone make money for you, but you can't have someone take your sickness for you. I vehemently disagree with that statement because the Bible says that our sickness isn't cancer. Our greatest sickness is sin. And the Lord Jesus Christ took our sickness. Jesus knew and understood not our financial reality, but our spiritual reality. And he knew that what we needed was different riches, different inheritance, because we had a different type of bankruptcy. He came to make us rich, not toward the world, but toward God. And the only ones, according to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where he says that blessed are those who are poor in spirit, the only ones who can benefit from the inheritance and the riches that are that can be yours in Christ are those who can admit their spiritual bankruptcy. Because poor in spirit doesn't mean you're struggling. Poor in spirit doesn't mean you might need to get a credit card. Uh, poor in spirit doesn't mean you need a, a financial head up, no, a hand up. Poor in spirit there means bankrupt, absolutely destitute. To the individual who can admit their bankruptcy, they will receive his inheritance. The individual who can admit their poverty, they will receive his riches. The individual who can receive, who can admit their brokenness will then participate in his wholeness. And to the one who can admit that they're destitute, they can then experience his deliverance. So here's what this means. If you are a follower of Jesus, let me talk to you for a second. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I would pray that you would become one by confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart that Jesus is not just the savior of your soul. He is the Lord of your life and your life includes your money. But for, let me say this. Here's what the gospel does. If the gospel is true, then it does two things. It produces equality and it produces generosity. Number one, it produces equality. What, what do I mean by that? Well, when I say equality, I'm not talking about equality of outcomes. I'm talking about equality of outlook. And here's why. Because one of the things that has impacted the church, sadly, is this divide between rich and poor. So much so that even in the early church, James has to write to the church and say, stop showing favoritism to the wealthy. Because the, the, the rich were being treated different from the poor. Even in the church, this has happened. I came across this stat when we were about to plant our church in Chicago that floored me. And the stat is this. It's easier to have racial diversity in a church than to have social economic diversity in a church. In other words, it's easier to have a black guy and a white guy sitting next to each other than having a rich guy and a poor guy sitting next to each other. That's how much money separates and divides. So what does James do? James sees the favoritism that is happening in the church. And what I love is that he applies the gospel to it. And here's how he deals with the, 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 the disunity. He says to them in James 1, he says, let the lowly, this is, he's referring to the poor here, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich 
in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. So, so get this. James says, if you want true unity, you don't show favoritism to one or the other. No, you preach the gospel. And when you preach the gospel, the person who is poor in the world is exalted when they think about the fact that they have riches and an inheritance in Christ. And the person who is rich in the world is humbled by the fact that no matter how rich they are, apart from Christ, they are destitute and bankrupt. When the gospel is preached, not only do you end up getting racial diversity, you end up getting socioeconomic diversity because the world has ladders, but Christianity has a cross. And at the foot of the cross, we are all equally sinful and yet all equally saved, regardless of what our net worth is. Amen? The last thing it does, though, it produces generosity. Generosity. You know, for a long time, I, I'm going to be transparent here. For a long time, hopefully you know by now, I don't ever really pull punches when I'm speaking on anything. I actually look forward to offending people. Is that something? I'm, I'm unhealthy. <laughs> but for a long time, the one area where I would pull punches was money. Because I would always be scared that I was going to push people out. I didn't want people to think that the church was about money. So let me say this before I say anything else. If you are not a follower of Jesus, if you don't consider yourself a member of this body, you can sit up. This is an all skate for the people that are believers and are in this church. Here's why I no longer shy away from that subject. Because I believe that not only does God command it, at the head level, but the gospel compels it at the heart level. The Bible commands generosity and the gospel compels generosity. So get this, if you are a follower of Jesus here and you are a member of this body, officially or unofficially, this is your church, and you don't give, the reason why you don't give at your hand level is not because you don't know that you should give at the head level. It's because you're combating it at the heart level. Because the Bible doesn't just command it, the gospel compels it. It compels it. That's why in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when Paul calls the Corinthians to give, he says to them, he says, I could command you, but instead what I'm going to do is I'm going to compel you with the good news of the gospel. He says, Jesus Christ, although he was rich, for your sake became poor so that through him you might become rich. Jesus was spiritually rich. We were spiritually bankrupt. He stepped into our bankruptcy so that we might have his inheritance and his wealth. Paul says, if you understand that, you will be a generous person. When you understand the, the, the vertical generosity of God, it will produce horizontal generosity in your life. For the person who says to me, well, you know, yeah, you know, I, I know that, that I'm a follower of Jesus. I know that I'm a part of this church. And, 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 I, and, and, and once I get more money, I, I promise I'm going to start giving. Hey, you know, I, God, God has my heart. Why does he need my wallet? Because God doesn't just want your wallet. God wants your worship. If you have a problem giving God your wallet, it's going to be real awkward when he asks you for everything else. A Christian that claims to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian that claims to understand the commands at the head level 
and is compelled at the heart level but doesn't give, it's like a married couple that has separate bank accounts. Hey, you can have my body, you can have my time, you can have my future, but not my money though, because I don't know if we're going to last. So just in case. <laughs> so you think, oh, yeah, he's bringing up money because he need, I, I don't need your money. I don't. Our church doesn't need your money. But the reason why God commands us to give is because if you can't do it at the hand level, then that means you don't actually believe it at the heart level. And even though it's scary to give, and even though it's, fe- what, what, what will we do? The reason why we can trust God with our smaller needs is because he's taking care of our greater need. And the reason why we can trust him with our daily bread is because Jesus came to be the bread of life. The only thing that will keep us from selfish hoarding and will produce selfless giving is not the guilt of God, but the grace of God. The law might command it, but his love compels it. And to the degree that you see Jesus generously giving himself to you, 2 Corinthians 8, to the degree that you see him generously sacrificing yourself for you, to that same degree, you will generously give of yourself to him. Amen?